You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Great. Um, Good morning, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks very much for being with us here at the Carnegie Endowment today uh, to discuss uh, the challenges, uh, the economic challenges uh, for the next uh, U.S. administration. Now, uh, those of you who are... uh, aficionados, if I might say so, of uh, the Carnegie Endowment know uh, that we are usually uh, talking about international issues. But as director of the International Economics Program at Carnegie, I thought that the U.S. election (coughs) is important enough to be a global uh, uh, event, uh, something that impacts uh, not just the United States, but uh, uh, the whole world. And uh, so therefore, we're making a little bit of an exception, focusing more on uh, domestic economic issues today. And uh, uh, I'm pleased to welcome uh, on the panel uh, my very good friend, uh, uh, Larry Kotlikoff, who is uh, a professor at um, uh, uh, Boston University. And um, you have his CV, very distinguished uh, academic achievements without question one of the leading uh, uh, macroeconomists, one of the world's leading macroeconomists. Um, and he is also a, a candidate for president uh, for uh, Americans elect and has uh, developed a plan called the Purple Plan that he will tell us a little bit about, which I believe has some of the most innovative uh, thinking about uh, economic policy in the United States and indeed globally uh, that we have seen in a long time. Uh, so I look forward very much to hearing from him. And to my left also an old acquaintance, Ron Blackwell, uh, who is uh, uh, just retired as the chief economist of the AFL-CIO. And Ron and I have sparred occasionally in the past when I was director of trade at the World Bank about um, <coughs> trade issues and uh, what was appropriate, what was not appropriate. Uh, I'm delighted to have him with us today. And um, Rob Shapiro, who really needs no introduction as one of the more uh, prominent uh, uh, commentators uh, and uh, analysts of uh, the United States uh, political scene, uh, was, uh, is currently the uh, uh, chairman of Sonicon, a consulting uh, company that he founded, and was uh, the U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs, served as the uh, principal economic advisor to Bill Clinton in his uh, 1981-82 presidential campaign. Uh, So let me then kick it off by asking uh, Larry, uh, uh, what, what do you see as the two or three main challenges uh, for uh, the next administration and what sorts of things uh, do you think are needed? Okay, well, I think on the uh, domestic front, we have an economy that's still uh, staggering. We have 27 million Americans who are either out of work or short on work. So we have to figure out why the markets aren't working. What is it that's really keeping us from getting to full employment? We're certainly improving compared to where we were a couple years ago, but 
at a very slow pace. It's going to take many years to get back to full employment. And uh, I think we need to understand that we have a massive coordination failure and understand what the economics of coordination failures tells us to do, which isn't necessarily to spend more money or cut more taxes, but to actually get a coordinated increase in employment that's voluntary, that's not compulsory. So that's an, uh, a number one problem, which is getting the economy going again. But we also have major fiscal problems. The country is effectively bankrupt when you look at the country like a, co like a company. You look at all the assets, all the taxes coming into the future, and all the liabilities, the official debt, which is very big and getting bigger all the time. But then there are the unofficial debts to pay Social Security benefits, Medicare, Medicaid. For Rob and I and Yuri and Ron, this is going to be $40,000 per person in today's dollars in about 15 years. Multiply that by 78 million baby boomers, you're talking about $3 trillion per year or so in today's dollars each year to pay the baby boomers their Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid benefits. So this is a scenario uh, that will bankrupt the country unless we get this under control. The fiscal gap, which is the difference between all these liabilities and all the assets here, is about $211 trillion large, according to the Congressional Budget Office's uh, projections. So the country is absolutely broke. We need to get these entitlement programs under control, but in a way that doesn't eliminate all the good they're doing. So I've been proposing reforms for Medicare, uh, for well, for the healthcare system in general, not just Medicare, uh, called the Purple Health Plan. I've got a Purple Social Security Plan. I've got a purple tax plan. We need to fix the tax system. It's a mess. It's a terrible mess. And it's very regressive, I think. Well, at least not, not progressive and uh, unfair and also inefficient. And I think we also need to fix Wall Street fundamentally so that it's not a danger any longer to Main Street. <clears throat> so these are called purple plans. Why purple? Because red Republicans and blue Democrats can agree to them. And that's why I'm wearing a purple shirt today uh, <laughs> and a purple tie. So we can get into the details of, of that. And they're very simple plans. Each one would fit on a postcard. And they really were designed to, to kind of think about the consensus views of economists, not just my pr particular presumptions about what to do, but to really talk to economists, to look at what's going on around the world on these policies, and to, and to think about modern technology and how we could do something different that could actually get the country's fiscal problems under control and move us ahead. And then the third major challenge that the country faces is foreign policy. We've engaged in two uh, wars of nation building that have been, I think, failures. And I think we need to move out of Afghanistan much sooner than two years from now. I think we should try and move out within six months. And I think we have a very major problem with respect to Iraq, sorry, with respect to Iran and their nuclear weapons program. I think we need to be very firm and clear with the Iranians that their time is getting close to being up and that we're not going to just sit around and wait for years for economic sanctions to change their mind, that, that their behavior has to change right away or there will be consequences. Because I think this is just too dangerous for our country, to have that nation with its leadership 
equipped with nuclear weapons that will endanger our children for generations to come. So those are my reactions. Thanks very much, uh, Larry. Uh, let me ask Rob and Ron if they more or less agree that those are the issues or if they have other issues that they, uh, that they want to bring up. Yeah. Well, um, uh, <laughs> since we're all economists, I agree and disagree uh, on the one hand and the other. Um, we certainly have a serious problem with labor markets. Um, and we ought to recognize that this precedes the financial crisis, that if we look at what was happening to job creation in the last expansion, that there's a real break between the economy's capacity to create new jobs in response to growth in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, and what happened in the 2002-2007 expansion. Uh, <clears throat> There's no obvious change in the way, there's no particular change in the way we were managing labor markets. Um, and yet the rate of job creation relative to growth uh, fell by 50%. Um, and uh, that tells us there is a new structural problem. Moreover, we saw, we also saw this phenomenon at the other side, on the flip side, which is wages and incomes. Um, again, if you look at the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, you, and you don't think about median income, which is not a very meaningful uh, number, frankly, but rather look at what was happening to the growth of incomes within each of the quintiles, which tells you much more what's actually happening in people's lives. <clears throat> you saw a pretty steady increase of one and a half to two and a half percent a year, depending on productivity rates. Um, and about half of that is usually between a third and a half of that is given back in a recession. Um, so you make this progress, you give back part of it in the recession, and then you go on to make more progress. Uh, that again ended in this last decade. Uh, <clears throat> there was no progress made in most of the income quintiles. Um, and then there were large losses, which occurred from the financial crisis and the deep recession, which followed. So we have a structural issue, which I believe, and I think most economists would believe, uh, is in some way tied up with the phenomenon of globalization, because that's the big change <laughs> that occurs in this period uh, in the underlying uh, conditions um, and then we have an additional problem uh, on top of that, which is what's happening, uh, what happened in the financial crisis, the collapse in particular of the value of the only asset that's broadly held in the economy, which was home equity. Um, the value of financial assets, the top 20% hold 93% of the value of all financial assets. That includes IRAs, pension plans, all financial assets, that leaves 7% for the bottom 80%. Um, but the bottom 80% held, before the crash, 40% of the value of all residential real estate assets. Um, so this was a, a crisis which wiped out a significant share of the wealth of most Americans, coming on top of a period in which their incomes had stopped rising. And so we have a new social problem, um, we talk about it in part in terms of inequality, growing inequality. That only captures a piece of it. 
um, more it's the ability of most people to improve the lives, uh, their lives over a significant period. That is a deep economic and social and political problem. Um, having said that, I mean, to me, those are the central domestic economic challenges we face. You know, we also face the problem of the, the unsustainability of the Eurozone uh, under its current arrangements and how that is going to blow back in either slowly or suddenly to the U.S. economy. And uh, I agree, we the financial system um, is um, still uh, dominated by institutions that are too big to fail and which we would expect to encounter large losses in the future. Um, and um, uh, the world is always filled with lots of other problems. I, I worry a lot about the financial system in China um, and an asset-based crisis in China, uh, as well as Europe. So every significant part of the world is in trouble. It usually is. We have to focus on jobs, what's happening in labor markets, what's happening in incomes, uh, in people's incomes, the our general economic capacity remains strong. We're still innovative. We're very efficient, very productive. Uh, and yet, structurally, something has happened to the way in which everyone interacts with that system. And uh, I think that's the great challenge for economists. Great. Uh, well, uh, I wanted just to get a panorama first from our panelists, and we are going to go uh, deeper in some of these. Uh, Ron, your, your sense of the priorities. I mean, I would join Larry's sense that the most urgent thing here is to recover from a crisis that we've been in. Uh, currently, one out of every five working-age men in the United States is not working. They're either unemployed or they're out of the labor force. <clears throat> uh, the more normal number is one out of 20. And many economists don't expect that's going to go much more beyond one out of six um, in the next few years. This is, uh, whatever it means economically, this is um, socially and politically unsustainable. It will drive our politics and it will divide our society, and you can see that in the electoral season. But when you consider that one out of five working-age men is, is uh, out, out, out of the labor force and that earnings have been stagnant for 35 years for working-age men, it means the earnings of working-age men are 28% below what they were in 1969. And the only reason family, median family incomes, if you'll let me use that questionable number, uh, uh, Rob, uh, the only reason it's, it's grown any since 1969 uh, is because of participation of labor, uh, in the labor force of increasing numbers of women. So, uh, and, but I'd say to the recovery is a big issue, putting these people back to work and dealing with the labor market issues that Rob has raised. But there's a, there's a longer-term issue here economically, which I... I would expect we would agree on, which is we have to restore uh, the long-run potential output growth of this country, which has been damaged seriously by this crisis, by long-term unemployment, especially by youth unemployment. Uh, and we have to restore uh, U.S. competitiveness, our ability to pull our weight in the world, to be able to produce more of the value equivalent of what we consume, because if we don't, we'll be forced one way or another to, to consume less. Now, to do those things, to address those two questions, the long-run questions, short-run questions, I think you've got to address four imbalances. And uh, the, the fiscal imbalance is the fourth, not the first. <laughs> uh, 
the, the first imbalance uh, is the, in my view, is the imbalance between our um, our external account imbalance, uh, which I believe, along with um, Chairman Bernanke, was an important source of this crisis, uh, and the housing bubble that burst that precipitated the crisis. Um, secondly, is the imbalance between finance and the real economy. Before this crisis happened, finance was completely out of control, economically and politically, in this country. The third imbalance, uh, which uh, Rob is pointing to, is an imbalance, the way I interpret it, is an imbalance uh, in bargaining power between workers and their employers, such that there's a tremendous divide between the productivity of workers and the, the compensation of workers over time. Uh, and the fourth is the federal, the uh, fiscal imbalance, which was the more the presently is more the result of this crisis than its cause. But it is something that we have to deal with uh, down the road and as an intermediate and longer term uh, problem. But I think the interaction of these things in the present moment, uh, both in the domestic economy uh, and internationally, is one of the most important challenges facing the next administration. And so far, at least, they haven't, as a group, even been posed uh, in, in, a, in, a, in the early days of our political environments. Hence the importance, Yuri, I think, of your beginning a discussion like this among people from all parties, both parties, uh, and all concerned citizens about the problems our government will face in the next administration. Very good. So, um, obviously, the recession, recovery, uh, you know, stimulative policies uh, is uh, this is a very important short-term question, but it's one that's, frankly, widely discussed already. So I'd like to steer uh, the conversation a little bit more towards the structural uh, issues, which to me are <clears throat> the more fundamental questions. You know, one day the United States will return to something resembling macroeconomic balance, as it has uh, many times in the past. Um, recessions and recoveries come and go. This is a particularly tough one. Uh, but uh, uh, the structural issues are really striking. I mean, the uh, uh, de deficit issues that Larry uh, put so much uh, emphasis on, the, uh, the assessment that the United States is, government is bankrupt. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more uh, about that. Then there is the uh, other big structural issues, which is uh, the competitiveness issues, the, 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 the trade and competitiveness uh, nexus, uh, the fact that the United States has run a cumulative current account deficit of about $8 trillion over the last uh, uh, 20 years or so. Uh, and then the third structural issue, uh, which is also critical, is uh, uh, inequality the inequality question. These are another very, very salient characteristic of the U.S. economy when you look at it in international perspective. Now, there are others. I know some in this room would like to discuss energy and climate, for example, the climate change issues, but hopefully we'll come to that as well. But here are the, uh, some of the big structural questions. So perhaps we can start on the debt uh, uh, issue. So... I want to ask Larry, uh, United States uh, has the blessing, and I believe also the curse, uh, that it is a safe haven. And uh, so despite all your warnings, 
that you have made for many years. United States government is currently borrowing at historically low rates, uh, a little under 2%. And uh, so uh, the question is, you know, when, when does this problem really materialize in a way uh, that American politicians recognize and, uh, uh, and act on? And when it does, or before it does, what are the main things that you would do to fix the problem? Well, the, uh, the problem of looking at market prices and interest rates and, and, and uh, suggest, letting them tell us there's no problem or that, these, that things are fine is that the market is so often wrong on pricing things. I mean, think about Italian government bonds back in 2005. They were AAA and selling at the same price as German bonds. Uh, look at our stock prices in 2000. They fell 50% over the next two years. Uh, look at what happened in 2007 to 2009. Stock market went down 50%. So if everybody uh, uh, knew what was coming, and you know th these things would not be happening. People were mispricing assets all the time. And in the U.S. case, the focus is on these official debts because that's what the Commerce Department and the CBO uh, place their focus on. But the fact is we have these enormous unfunded liabilities, these off-balance sheet obligations, if you like, that are not part of the official debt, but they're only not part of the official debt because of the kind of language we're using to describe these programs. So, for example, Social Security contributions, the government is calling those a tax and the benefits are called a transfer payment. So the government comes to young people, you guys are the young people, and says, hey, give me some taxes. I'm going to give these to the old people over here. And don't worry, when you're old, you're going to get these taxes back with interest plus a whole lot more. And then you're sitting over here, and the next set of young people, the government comes to you and says, hey, give me some more taxes because um, I have to pay off your parents, but don't worry, they're their taxes, quote, quote, but don't worry, you're going to get them back with a whole lot more. And using this language, rather than saying I'm borrowing from the young people and giving to the old, the government is keeping these obligations off the books. So this is, uh, where do you think Enron learned how to do its accounting? It learned it from Uncle Sam. Where do, you think, where do you think Madoff learned about Ponzi schemes? It wasn't just Ponzi, he learned it from Uncle Sam. This is an ongoing chain letter that's been kept off the books intentionally by Congress, uh, with language that uh, uh, I think that the, the, the members of Congress that really understood this at a gut level were very careful to make sure the language was uh, such as to keep it off the book. So we're focused on the wrong numbers, and therefore we're not seeing the true picture. The true picture is just horrendous. Uh, how do you get a control of things? Well, the CBO is projecting that healthcare spending by governments, federal and state, are going to go from 10% of GDP where they are now up to 23% of GDP over time. That's a scenario that bankrupts the country. That's the biggest part of the fiscal gap. If you could keep that expenditure 10% of GDP, you'll, have, you'll get the fiscal gap to come down by 60%. So just on this, on this issue of health care, how would I get that under control? Uh, I would uh, get rid of Medicare. I would get rid of Medicaid. I would get rid of employer-based health care. I would get rid of the new health exchanges. And I would start from a clean sl uh, slate, and I would give everybody in the country 
a basic plan, not the government provide a voucher to everybody in the country that's individually risk-adjusted. So if uh, Rob's got a backache, he's got a bigger <laughs> voucher. Yuri's got a knee problem, he's got a bigger voucher. If I'm perfectly healthy, he got a smaller voucher. We take our voucher to an insurance company of our choosing, and we get exactly the same basic plan no matter which insurance company we go to. So there's not five different choices, one basic plan, and so that we make health insurance a commodity so that the insurance companies have to compete with each other to, to provide us the basic plan. But because he's coming at, to them with a bigger voucher, they're going to be very happy to cover him. So we get around the, the fundamental problem of the health insurance market, which is adverse selection by compensating the people with bad uh, genes or bad luck for that experience, and also telling the insurance companies you can't turn anybody down. Now, a panel of doctors would determine what is covered by the basic plan, and they would set those coverages so that we don't have the vouchers exceeding 10% of GDP ever through time. Now you've got everybody in the country having a basic health care plan. Uh, the old don't get a better health care plan than the young children. Everybody gets the same basic plan. Rich people can buy supplemental coverage. And then you're at 10% of GDP through time, not 23%. The country has solved a big problem. It's also very progressive because poor people are sicker on average. They're going to get much bigger vouchers. The older people are sicker on average. They're going to get bigger vouchers too. So it's, it's fair to the different generations, and it's progressive. It's something both Republicans and Democrats should like. Uh, Republicans will be happy to have the private provision is still there. It's uh, a controlled proposal in terms of expenditures. The Democrats should like the progressivity. And if we care about our kids, we should like our kids to have the same basic health care plan as our parents, so as we as ourselves receive. So there are that's an example of how to fix things. Now let me just say one last thing about that and then I'll pass the baton here. Yeah. The the Germans, the Dutch, the Swiss, the Israelis, the Japanese, they basically all have the same system. Even the Canadians. This is the system that if you look fundamentally at what the structure of those programs is, that's what they have. Those countries are uh, are not going broke, not going bankrupt because of their health care programs. Uh, and Switzerland and Germany spend 11% of their GDP on health care, on all their health care. We're spending about 18%. So I'm saying for 10% of GDP, we should be able to get a really good basic plan for everybody in the country. And that's the way we should move. Thank you. Let yeah. me ask uh, Ron, and by the way, if you want to intervene at any point, uh, I'll come back to you. Right. Let me ask Ron, because I'm sure this is an issue that you have thought about. Uh, uh, as an uh, early retiree. Yeah, as, an, <laughs> as, a, as a retiree, uh, just a new retiree. No other reason. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, what, what's, what's your reaction? I mean, you know, as a, as a Frenchman would uh, I'm looking, I look at the system. You know, I pay my medical bills here. I just cannot believe the size of what I pay. And when I'm in France, you know, That's right. it's a little fraction of this. And I say, what's, you know, what's going on here? Right. What? You yeah. pay a lot higher taxes in what? France. You pay a lot I'm higher taxes higher. for health care. Nevertheless, you're in a private hospital in France. I was in one recently. Yeah. 
It was yeah. a fraction of the cost of hospitalization here in the United States. Fraction. Yeah. Excellent care. Yeah. But uh, I think you have to understand the causes of the fiscal imbalance. Uh, and I don't, I'll, I'll introduce yeah. my hypothesis about that. Yeah. And I think there's agreement and perhaps disagreement. Short run, we do not have a budget crisis. We have a big deficit, but that's mostly the result of the recession and the ill-advised uh, tax cuts of the early 2000s, which created a structural deficit there. Intermediate term, we do have a problem uh, that is, is caused really by those tax cuts that we couldn't afford then, and we certainly can't afford now. We should get rid of them. Uh, thirdly, we have a very, very serious long-run uh, fiscal problem, and that's traceable, um, as Larry said, to health care costs. They're simply out of control. Uh, I doubt if w what Larry's proposing would do much to contain them. I think if we could reduce them to 10% of GDP, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, many other countries do it, and we should be able to do it too, uh, that would solve our long-run fiscal problem. And no nothing else will except two things. Uh, one other thing, which is very much under discussion, I heard it in your proposal. Let's shift all the costs of health care off of government balance sheets onto individuals, which is exactly what ending Medicare and Medicaid would do. And that would also result in the end of employer-provided health insurance, and it would push everybody into a market that they simply as an individual health care market, only our wealthiest families can negotiate. Well, wait, everybody's so, going to get a very good basic plan by, paid for by the government. I don't see where we're shifting it off the government's back. The government is going to be paying 10% of GDP in vouchers to everybody to get a basic plan. Yeah, but they, they haven't controlled what their people are being charged for health care. What people are being charged for is the ugly truth here. The difference between the systems that you are mentioning and this system is the distended economic power of the healthcare industry. It is second in this country only to the financial sector. Well, we that's and the reason this healthcare reform didn't isn't enough that we got under the, the Obama administration is that it didn't deal with that power. It didn't allow uh, Medicare to negotiate prices, for example. It didn't allow uh, uh, the, the price of services to be restrained. Under my, under, let me just say one, real quick on this <laughs> issue of power. Uh, under my proposal. The way I envision things is people would be signing up with, like, Kaiser Permanente. They have a lot of leverage with the doctors because they hire the doctors. They hire the hospitals. They own the hospitals. They can negotiate with the drug companies. So my vision of, of, of dealing with the concern, the legitimate concern you're raising, is that it would get fixed under what I'm proposing. But we can talk some more. Yeah, go. Yeah. Go. yeah. yeah. Well, you, um, you know, first of all, I want to say that how much I respect Larry's decades-long effort to bring attention to this. I don't think anyone has had a greater impact on alerting, in particular, elites about the long-term problems before anyone felt any pain and consequently had any incentive to think about it than Larry um, through his development of intergenerational accounting. Um, I... Um, uh, <clears throat> Having said that, I disagree with much of what he says. I don't think that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. I think, in fact, it is it, it is a government version of what is the most traditional act in the world, which is that children contribute to the support of their parents when their parents get old. Um, and um, we wouldn't design it today the same way we designed it in the 30s, certainly. Um, uh, but 
the notion that it's kind of fundamentally corrupt, I, I reject. Um, look, economists can come up with lots of, lots of clever ways uh, and insightful ways to address these issues. Healthcare is particularly difficult because the cost increases in this period are driven by, not by the inefficiencies of the, of the system, which are enormous, but which are not dominant right now, but rather what's dominant is the acceleration of the development of medical technologies, which are very, very expensive, um, and the uh, fact that the, the uh, numbers of people um, becoming 60 or over, which is where uh, the most expensive common uh, ailments are concentrated, which is to say heart disease and cancer, is expanding at three times the rate of the rest of the population. Um, and we have a collision there. That means we have to address some of the, the we can't address the demographics, right? We can't say, well, there are going to be fewer people. Uh, so we have to address the dynamics that are driving the technology, frankly. Uh, and let's not kid ourselves. Uh, the reason we, this, the United States uh, is the center of, of the development of advances in procedures and treatments and everything else is because we're the only country that doesn't control the prices. Um, and so the incentives are much greater. Um, and to some extent, the rest of the world free rides on that um, because we develop these procedures and medications, and then they have national governments that negotiate and say, as, as, as you suggested we should do, and say, well, we're only going to pay this amount, uh, France. Uh, France doesn't pay, you know, when you get the same treatment, the same biotech treatment in France, um, it's, it's significantly cheaper than it costs in the United States because the government has said, this is all we're going to pay. And Amgen and Gilead say, okay, we'll take it. Uh, they have differential pricing around the world. Uh, but the main point, so, so I think these are very, very difficult issues um, because one of the results will be less innovation. Uh, we're going to reward it less, we're going to get less of it. That's a fact. Uh, that's kind of an economic fact, I think. Um, and that'll be one of the prices we pay. Um, okay, that may, that is, I think, probably an acceptable uh, cost. Um, although I don't know what condition I might have that might have been treated in 10 years by an innovation that isn't going to come up. But fortunately, I won't know that anyway. Um, but I want to bring up one other issue, which I really think is fundamental. Um, Larry and lots of others, including everyone else here on the stage, uh, has ideas about what to do about reforming all of these systems. Some of them are better, some of them are worse. The problem is not coming up with the right idea. This is not an economic problem, it's a political problem. The fact is, our political system has become incapable of addressing these issues in a very fundamental and serious way. Look, we've had large deficits in the past. And one of the reasons that we still borrow at 2% is global investors have taken the lesson of what happened in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. 
Um, we had what appeared to be very large deficit problems. It took us two or three years while each party reassured its base that it would never do what, in fact, it was going to do. Um, and then we did it. Um, and we did it in the same way. We, we trimmed defense, we trimmed health care, and we raised taxes. We did it in the 1980s. We did it in the 1990s. The only way to address this problem is to do, do that again, the same package, uh, the same silos anyway, though I agree with Larry that it will require much more, much deeper reform of health care than we carried out in the 80s or 90s. Um, but the system which created those compromises, which created the political room for those compromises, is, is not with us today. Um, and this is a, a, uh, uh, a very deep problem, and it's not an economic problem. It's an answer, um, though. And, wait vote, a minute. Vote for me. Vote for you. <laughs> um, uh, there are lots of answers, but, not real, but, but realistic answers are a lot harder. Yeah. Let me say one, one last thing, and that is we are headed towards um, uh, a train wreck at the end of the year. Um, and it arises exclusively entirely out of this issue. You know, in finance, there's something called the tri triple witching hour. Four times a year, all stock options, future contracts on, and options on stock indexes and futures on stock indexes all come due at the same moment. And, um, uh, and it introduces potential volatility into the market. Uh, four times a year, and usually actually happens maybe once a year that you get a real volatile response. Um, well, at the same moment, um, that is December 31st, all of the Bush tax cuts will expire. The president's payroll tax relief will expire. The grace period before the $1.2 trillion in um, uh, automatic sequestration runs out, and within a week or two on either side, the debt limit will reach its limit all at once. If we do nothing, here, here's the irony. We don't if have a short-term fiscal problem. If we do nothing, we have solved a lot of the deficit. Uh, we have done it, however, by shutting down the economy. Uh, that kind of austerity, uh, which would be largely tax-driven, uh, would shut down the U.S. economy. Um, and yet it is very, very hard to imagine a, the political constellation that can do more than, I mean, my guess is that what they, the only thing they'll be able to agree to is when you kind of think through, you know, well, if Romney's elected or if the president is reelected and if the Republicans hold the House or the Democrats take the House, all that there are eight combinations, incidentally. And I kind of try to think it through. And the only the best case scenario is that they push it two months down the road and say, we're going to extend everything for two months and let, let the president, new president, whether it's the same president or not, and the new Congress deal with it. There is no basis to believe that these parties can do this. I have a modest proposal. <laughs> it comes out of well, game. But be short, yes. Okay, Go very ahead. short. Yeah. It comes yeah. out of game theory. Um, the problem here is 
not that not simply that each side doesn't want you know Democrats don't want to cut entitlements, Republicans don't want to raise taxes, um, but that they fear that they uh, because after all they agreed to do that in the 80s and they agreed to do it in the 90s, um, but that they uh, uh, believe they would have no control over what over how that was carried out, and um, so the. The proposal here, and it, you know, it comes from many years ago. I was a Senate Finance Committee staffer for Pat Moynihan, and um, uh, life insurance taxation was so complex that the Senate Finance Committee would say to the life insurance industry, "Okay, your piece of this revenue bill is four billion dollars. Figure out how to do it." And the life insurance industry wrote their own provisions, because we couldn't do it. Um, well, that's, we ought to adapt that. If, if you can get each party to agree on the gross amounts of entitlement, saving, and uh, tax increases, if the Republicans agree to, say, a trillion dollars in tax increases over 10 years, they get to determine how to do it, how to raise it. The Democrats agree to two... Two trillion dollars in in entitlement uh, cuts or savings, uh, they get to determine how to do it. So each side gets to control that which they are uh, politically most vulnerable to. Um, look, I don't think it's particularly realistic, but it does highlight uh, that we are headed for a political crisis that will precipitate an economic crisis. Good. Okay. Thank you very much. Ron, and bear in mind, I really want to move to the inequality issue very okay, quickly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just to get another possibility on the table. Mm. Uh, the point you make about this is a political problem. I absolutely agree with that. There's no economic reason we couldn't solve this. I may disagree about how, et cetera. But um, the economy doesn't come to an end if we let these things expire at the end of the year. Under an ideal world, if we had a substantial and sustained public investment program and the education and training of our workforce and rebuilding a world-class infrastructure and, uh, and, and borrowing 2% money uh, over 10 years to do it, put hundreds of thousands of people back to work, get this economy moving forward, that would compensate for the fiscal drag from relaxing these tax cuts. No, and this is, this is something it's that... 5% we're... of GDP, it doesn't... doesn't let, me, let me just finish the point, okay? We can currently borrow money at 2%. We have 25 million people looking for full-time work. We have $3.3 trillion deficit in public infrastructure. we got kids that need to be educated. We need these things to restore our competitiveness and long-term output growth. It's crazy not to borrow the money now uh, and, and recognize that uh, we get rid of these tax cuts, which solves our short-run and intermediate-term fiscal problem and helps us rebuild our national competitiveness and long-term output growth. The reason we're not getting any one of these proposals going forward is political, but I take it in a different way than you would. I would say it's the fact that our politics are saturated in money. And where does that money come from? It comes from the industries that have a vested interest in not doing any of these proposals. Finance, for example, pays more to both major parties. I don't know how much Larry's getting from, from finance. They're getting your share, but you should, no, no, you should no, no, get no. your share, Larry. I'm the only one who has a proposal to fundamentally change Wall Street, you should look at limited purpose banking, the purple financial plan. 
we'll yeah. get we'll get to but that. My, yeah. my, my yeah. point is that yeah. our money is and, and finance gives money to both parties. And the cost of campaigns is exorbitant. I don't know how many couple of billion dollars going to be spent in this presidential election. Right. No other country has this kind of problem. So, so why don't we address these, the, these issues of the fact that our political system is not functioning to address the real long-term needs uh, of our country and its future? Okay, so let me, this takes me to the issue of inequality, which is uh, one of the striking things about the United States when you look internationally. Right. Uh, today, the United States is uh, uh, just about the most unequal uh, advanced country in the world. And, uh, um, Most, by any measure. Uh, yeah, I can. Nothing Israel, Israel sort of compares a little bit. But uh, anyway, um, the, uh, uh, and furthermore, you have, uh, you know, inequality is one thing. It's another if uh, the average household income hasn't increased since, I think, 1999 is the correct uh, is the correct reference date. So 13 years where the average household has seen no uh, increase in real incomes. And even if you say you don't care about inequality, that inequality is good, inequality is, is the way that the market rewards performance, uh, you still would worry about, uh, about the fact that the uh, average incomes are uh, stagnant and you would also worry about the fact that uh, there's been a significant increase in poverty in this country, and the gap is is really quite gigantic. So, uh, you know, what's causing this, and uh, what what's happening here? Uh, what's behind it, and how much of it is actually linked to Ron's point that uh, uh, not only somehow is the market generating these unequal outcomes. But the political system is, uh, is unable to respond to it. And indeed, in some cases, the political system may actually be making it worse. Um, uh, so, Larry, how do you read it? Well, I think there are a lot of factors. There's clearly a lot of uh, competition with China in the low on the low-wage workers. There's technolo technological change, which is substituting for labor, uh, unskilled labor. Uh, but we've also been running a policy of uh, transferring from young people. I'm not saying this is a corrupt policy. I didn't use that word, but uh, from, to old people. A lot of these old people are rich old people. Uh, so when you take from young people, many of whom are poor, and give to old people through this uh, tax transfer system, you can generate a lot of benefits to the elderly, now, uh, to the rich elderly. Uh, in particular. So think about the fact that we were, we're taxing dividends and capital gains at a 15% rate, labor income at, on average, a higher rate. Who does that benefit? Benefits the wealthy. That's a redistribution towards the wealthy. Uh, think about giving, you know, Medicare increases to Warren Buffett every year, for year after year after year. That's a, that's a transfer. So I think that the fiscal side of this is important for understanding the inequality. It's not the main, probably the main story, but it's an important element. So one of the things I'm proposing is uh, a tax reform, which gets rid of, it's going to sound very regressive when I mention this, but wait till the end, okay? It's always important to hear everything. 
The, I'm going to get rid of the, under what I'm proposing, the purple tax plan, get rid of the federal income tax, the, the personal federal income tax, and get rid of the corporate income tax, which I think falls on workers, not on rich owners of corporations, because the corporations can move abroad and, and the rich owners can earn their money in those corporations abroad. So get rid of the income tax, the corporate income tax, and the estate and gift tax, which I think is dysfunctional too. I make the payroll tax highly progressive by taking the ceiling off and exempting the first $40,000 of the employee portion of the tax. So now you have a highly progressive payroll tax, a wage tax. I also run the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit through the payroll tax to make sure that those very important elements of the current income tax uh, that's progressive are retained. I have an implicit, a consumption tax, which taxes all of consumption, including the imputed rent on your home, homes and other durables, because that's a big part of the consumption of the economy. So if you live in a home, you'd have to pay consumption taxes on the use of your home each year. And the rich have a lot of homes. They've got airplanes, boats. Uh, all those durables would be subject to consumption taxation. And there's also a demogrant under this proposal, uh, which is a George McGovern term, a monthly payment to each household so that the poor pay no consumption tax on net. Now, we economists know that consumption taxation is uh, equivalently, it's equivalent mathematically to taxing wages and wealth. Why is it equivalent to taxing wealth? Well, let's suppose that Rob had a billion dollars. A billion one dollar yes, bills. Yes, <laughs> He has a, one, a billion one dollar, one dollar bills. And he's swimming around in a swimming pool with these things. If I take 15% of those away, and I'm, this tax, this plan is a 15-15-15 plan at the top. There's also a 15% progressive inheritance tax here, as that's the third part of the plan. So I uh, take 15% of his, of his dollar bills away. That's a one-time wealth tax, right? You're worse off because of that. We don't tax principal wealth in this country. So that would be something that you as a left of center uh, I, can, I think that's a fair characterization. Fair characterization. We'd probably applaud, right? Sure. Now, what if we do the exact same thing, but we do it a slightly different way? What if we let you keep all $1 billion of your $1 bills, and we just raise prices by 17.5%? Your purchasing power has just dropped instantly by 15%. So it's exactly, in real terms, exactly the same outcome. Whether or not you spend the money yourself, whether or not you give it to your kids or charities, the purchasing power of your wealth has gone down by 15%. You've been hit with a wealth tax. So relative to the current system, what I'm proposing hits those with wealth. And this will uh, hit Warren Buffett pretty hard compared to the current system. He's paying 15% on the income from his wealth. He's not paying 15% of his principal. So, and there's also an inheritance tax as well, so as I said. So there are ways to use tax reform to improve uh, the equality of uh, the distribution of wealth, and it is a major concern. So I agree. Good. Uh, anybody want to chip course, in on absolutely. the yeah. inequality issue? Yeah. Any more? Yeah. Well, I'd like I'd, to you. it's yeah. you know it's obviously an incredibly complex phenomenon. Um, you know, we have the United States has become very competitive in producing um, IP intensive kinds of goods. Um, it, we have an economy organized around information technologies. The, the 
uh, skills required to generate and use those kinds of ideas and technologies are distributed much less equally than the skills required to perform well in an industrial economy, and that's part of it. You know, educated men today are much more likely to marry educated women. That's an element in inequality, actually, because you're combining two relatively higher higher incomes. Um, uh, and, um, you know, tax policy, it's very interesting. Um, I recently looked at what happened to the growth of incomes within each quintile pre-tax and post-tax to see the differences. And the it's, it's interesting, everybody over the last 25 years got tax breaks, everybody, every quintile. Uh, and there were pretty hefty ones at the bottom, um, much small, and that's mainly the EITC, uh, much smaller ones in the middle relative to gains in in pre-tax income, though they did better in pre-tax income than poor people. At the top, you had enormous gains in pre-tax income, uh, really enormous. Um, over the last 35 years, 240% um, uh, compared to like 30% in the middle. Um, uh, and they still got some additional tax that is uh, tax breaks. That is, their post-tax incomes grew even faster than their pre-tax income. So, you know, taxes has contributed to this, but this is largely an economic phenomenon. And uh, we ought to recognize, though, that, you know, I mean, people's... I just came from uh, uh, AEI's Global Forum, and the first question they posed for their plenary session was, does inequality matter? Um, and uh, which to them was a question. Um, to the conserv- to conservatives in America, that's a real question. Uh, should we pay any attention at all to this? And the argument is basically this is the way the market works. Well, the market evolves in lots of different ways, and um, uh, that doesn't mean that you know we're never powerless to uh, to. Uh, uh, make interventions when the way it evolves is producing the, a society that we don't want. Right. Um, and so, of course, we can intervene. Last point, there are lots of costs to inequality that sociologists and epidemiologists are finding today that are entirely separate from direct economic costs, that in more unequal societies, this is something China needs to think about very deeply, in more unequal societies relative to less unequal societies, holding everything else constant, um, rates of, of lots of illnesses are much higher, rates of social dysfunction are higher. Um, you know, we compare ourselves to each other, and we feel worse about ourselves if we see these gaps increasing. This is particularly true for children. It particularly affects the most talented children, incidentally. Um, who are most adversely affected by it. So there are lots and lots of reasons uh, why we have to, whether or not we can go directly to the cause, uh, why we have to make interventions to at least modify, moderate the effects. Good. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know the, to the earlier conversation, I don't know the situation in Israel, but um, Israel is not an OECD country. I guess that's why I was thinking. It is an OECD country, but, well, okay, it is now an OECD country. Well, in case, country. that's what's yeah. confusing yeah. me. Anyway, yeah. the OECD just did a study of inequality, yeah. um, major study of inequality. And the U.S. was the largest, I think it was Mexico and Turkey were the only other countries in the OECD area that had more inequality. But uh, there's two dimensions to this, which I think need to be distinguished. One is wage inequality. High wage earners earn more than low wage earners, and uh, those discrepancies are growing. And, and much of the talk about this in this town focuses on, on wage inequality and tries to explain it by either technical change or globalization. What's really going on underneath this, however, and the reason I said that the problem is a bargaining power question, is the share of wages in national income. That share in the United States history was virtually constant at 70% up until the mid-1970s. But because of the divide between wages and productivity, the share of national income that went to wages, all wages, started to fall. And, and, and it's been falling continuously to this very day. But presently, uh, this it started in the United States, but it's falling faster in Europe than it is in the United States presently, even in Scandinavia. It's falling faster in Japan than it is in, in Europe. And through much of the emerging world, it's falling as well. So China's inequality is growing at the same time. This inequality of the wage share is coming from the fact that workers, whether they're organized or not, they don't have the bargaining power to claim their share of increasing productivity. And that was the key relationship in the early post-war period of growing inequality where, 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 where uh, income was broadly shared as the economy grew or developed. That has to be fixed, and it can't be fixed through the tax system because taxes are too small a proportion of, of income. It's a pre-tax problem, which can't be... It, it, the, the inequality among taxes uh, has aggravated this problem. There's no question about that, uh, and we should fix that uh, through your means or others. Wealth tax would be a great idea, by the way. Um, but it's got to be fixed by bolstering the bargaining power of workers, whether they're organized or not. And you're going to hear from me as a union guy, that we need effective laws to protect workers' rights to organize and bargain collectively. But there's many other things here. The only period in the past 35 years when wages rose anywhere close to productivity increases in the United States was the last three years of the Clinton administration. Not, I would argue, because of his policies, but because you had, ten, you had full employment or near full employment which gave workers a bargaining power to claim their share of increasing productivity and wages. Which was also as a result of his policies. Maybe or maybe not. There's, That's I, the I, 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 would, I, would get into, I would get into this with this. Yeah. But uh, the point here is that the fact that we don't have full employment is not on the platform of either of our political parties. And no, nobody's even trying. Look for it. Look for it in the platforms when they come out. Is full employment in there or is it not? It's on my platform. Good for you. Okay. Uh, look, I, I, have, I, I do want to come back to the panel on the issue of trade and competitiveness, uh, uh, the other big structural question. But before I do that, I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions. Yes, let's take uh, maybe two or three at a time. Uh, gentleman here, lady, Jessica. Yes, please. My name is Judd Harry. Um, with respect to, I believe it was the second of your imbalances, financial sector, uh, we have the Dodd-Frank bill. Could you, could you talk about the basic problems of the financial sector? 
and what the Dodd-Frank solves and what it leaves hanging. Happy to. Yeah, uh, good. Uh, real quick. Uh, yeah, no, 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 wait. Uh, we'll take the question. Come back to you. Yeah. I'm Dr. Caroline Poplin. I'm an attorney and a physician, and I turn 65 in two weeks. I'm very concerned about what Mr. Kotlikoff said about uh, Social Security, that it's a pay-as-you-go program. If that's true, then the Greenspan, let me say that, that name again, Greenspan Commission in 1983 was a swindle. That was supposed to pre-fund our retirement. And you don't expect the government to just take the cash and put it in Fort Knox. What would, how would you suggest we pre-fund our retirement collectively as opposed to everybody saving enough and in, somehow and investing successfully enough uh, so that when they, it's time to retire or they are retired by the system, uh, they have enough to live on. Good. Jessica Matthews? Um, Jessica Matthews, Carnegie Endowment. I want to uh, just uh, make one comment about health and then ask a question. Um, and it's about innovation, which I think um, the fear that we would run out of innovation is a red herring. Because innovation isn't neutral. Innovation is driven, the choice of what to work on in a company is driven by certain criteria. And right now, not only is cost not a criterion, it's a perverse criterion. Because it takes so long to develop a new drug or, or procedure and get it approved that companies have a huge incentive to innovate the most expensive procedures and drugs that they can. And, um, you know, this is, this is, I sit on the board of a biotech company and I watch this all the time. It's horrifying, but that's the way it is. If cost were a criterion of what can get approved, then innovation goes in a different direction. This is the same thing as internalizing environmental externalities. It's, it's, it's sort of basic. And I, 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 I just think this one ought to be taken off the table. But I wanted to ask, all of you acknowledge that our problems, the biggest problems, are political rather than, than economic. And, and Rob said something that I think is, it may be enormously critical, which is that inequality is less important than the problem of people's abilities to improve their own lives. And I just, I wondered whether all of you could address the question of where you think the political problem mostly lies. I mean, the question of the, the, the legalized corruption in our system was brought up. But is that, is that the core? Or what do you think is the core? Okay, good. So um, I suspect, Larry, you may want to take the, yeah. the question on the financial system, unless uh, you want to. I want to say something, about just a note there. Yeah, yeah and, uh, uh, and then we have the question on Social Security yeah. and the comment on innovation and the question about what, what lies at the root of the political paralysis. So, uh, I have something, so yeah, 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 you yeah, go yeah. ahead. Okay, start. I'll try and yeah. keep it real. Kotlikoff2012.org has all my plans, including how to fix Social Security in a way I think that you would find uh, interesting. The... 
the banking system we have is a trust me banking system where the bankers are leveraging themselves way up and uh, they're investing in things that uh, can be potentially very risky and uh, they're not telling you what they're doing so it's opaque trust me complex banking so what I'm proposing is quite different from Dodd-Frank which I think just resurrects the old system I don't think that uh, it was like what happened with 9-11. Osama bin Laden helped attack uh, the Twin Towers, and then we went off and invaded Iraq. That's what I see Dodd-Frank. It's a complete non sequitur. We had this, these problems of the financial system. They went off and, quote, fixed other things. So what should we really do with the financial system? Well, I'm going to give you a very quick proposal, very quick, that has been endorsed by five Nobel laureates in economics, by George Schultz, by Bill Bradley, by Bill Niskanen when he was still alive, by Robert Reich, people on the left, the right, the center, Kevin Hess, not Paul Krugman. Uh, he's not a good enough economist. Uh, <laughs> 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 Sorry, yeah. No, but some very, very impressive people. Ken Rogoff, Jeff Sachs, a lot of very uh, distinguished economists. And uh, maybe Paul would come around to this. But here's the idea. You take all the financial corporations that are operating with limited liability, and you say you can operate in just one way, which is as a mutual fund holding company that issues non-leveraged mutual funds, 100% equity finance mutual funds. And in a mutual fund, we have 10,000 individual mutual funds in this country. We have more mutual funds than we do have banks. Each mutual fund that doesn't borrow, and that's what I'm talking about, mutual funds that don't borrow, money market mutual funds, by the way, do borrow because they claim to back to the buck their uh, investments that, that come in. So I'm talking about 100% equity financed, non-leveraged mutual funds. They take in their money by selling out shares, and then they take the money and they invest in whatever they're specialized in. Those mutual funds can't go broke. So you now all of a sudden have a financial system that can't collapse because all the financial companies are issuing mutual funds which are, in effect, small banks which are not leveraged. And then the other aspect of this proposal, which is called limited purpose banking, is to have a single financial agency, federal agency called the Federal Financial Authority, which would be like an FDA for the financial services sector, to do the verification of all the securities that the mutual funds are buying, selling, and holding. So by verification, I mean if Rob tries to get a mortgage, the Federal Financial Authority would hire companies working just for it to verify his job, that he's got a job, verify what his income is, verify what his credit rating is, history is, to appraise the house that he's trying to buy. So we would never have a liar loan again, as we had in the last crisis. So part of the problem is we are allowing Angelo Mazzillo's to initiate fraudulent securities. That would go away under what I'm proposing. And his mortgage, once it was verified by this Federal Financial Authority, will go up for auction to the mutual funds that are investing in mortgages. So we'd have a very efficient, modern financial system that would never fail, that would have transparency. So there are ways to fix the financial system. And a big number, you know, a significant uh, set of people uh, has endorsed this. And that's part of my proposal. Good. Uh, well, as you'll read uh, when you look at the proposal, and in a book I wrote called Jimmy Stewart is Dead, there's ways to have safe allocation of risks uh, that, in effect, run derivatives in a way that imposes no risk to the taxpayer 
or the financial system. Uh, I just want to say, to, to that question, the, the financial sector was too big going into the crisis and completely un, inadequately regulated, so in, in that they were a source of much of the problem here. But the reform efforts, including Dodd-Frank, uh, were aimed only at the problem of how do you make it more stable? More stable. So this will never happen again, I think it was the battle cry, uh, which is ridiculous because it's going to happen again, uh, whatever we do. Um, but it didn't deal with the question, more fundamental question, of reducing the size of the financial sector, which we need to do, uh, and, and its weight in the economy and its power in both the economy and in politics. And it didn't assure that the fundamental reason we have a financial service sector is to channel savings to productive investment and to help us manage risk. There's no other public purpose for having this thing. Uh, and yet we didn't even address those questions. None of the reform efforts, including Dodd-Frank, Failure of Dodd-Frank with regard to the stability question is that we simply haven't solved the too-big-to-fail problem. These banks should have been broken up because there is no way to protect institutions of this size. Let me ask you a question. Can anyone in this room imagine that Goldman Sachs would be allowed to fail? I I don't believe with anybody in charge. And so, that, so the, the vulnerability of the system is there, but there's an underlying problem here, which is we have to have a more effective and efficient uh, regulation of the system to uh, channel savings of people into productive investment. Okay. Uh, at some point, Larry, you should come back to the Social Security question oh, okay. and give a little bit more of an answer than okay, saying read, read the... Okay, I just didn't okay, want to yeah. occupy you. No, no, oh, okay, yeah. I'll come back to you on that. Okay. But, but uh, Jessica's question about what, what lies at the root of the political paralysis, is it just money? What, what's going on here? Well, um, uh, I don't think it's just money. I think money exacerbates this, but it didn't create this problem. There's been a lot of money in politics for a long time, directly and indirectly. Um, we now have, and you know, I don't see any way around it because we have a Supreme Court decision that says that you know, 80 people in the country who contribute the vast majority to the super PACs um, can do whatever they want, and they're going to spend. These are multi-billionaires, and they're going to spend tens of millions of dollars each. And the real danger, incidentally, I don't think is in the presidential race. It's in congressional races. Presidential race, both sides is going to have enough money to offset whatever the other side does. But, you know, you dump, you know, a million or two dollars into 40 congressional races, and you change who controls the Congress. Um, so I think it's very dangerous. Um, what that is doing is exacerbating a polarization which has has developed in the last 15 years um, and a polarization that is particularly dangerous because it's polarization that coincides with a nearly even division of the country. Polarization doesn't have, have a great impact if you got a significant majority of the country on one side. You get polarization and close division and you get paralysis uh, and an inability to address these problems. Um, I, you know, I can't, cannot believe, the problem is when I try to figure out what is driving this, 
it's developments that government can't do anything about, as far as I can see. Um, you know, I think it has to do with the way we communicate. I think it has to do with the decline of newspapers and of network news and the rise of cable TV and the Internet. Um, the change in the basic norm of how we uh, find out what's happening in the world, which was kind of objective both sides that newspapers gave and network news gave for um, uh, this kind of balkanized media in which everybody goes to the sites and the stations that already agree with them and intensify it, and that these have all become modes of entertainment and because, you know, we all live attached to these devices, um, and the paradigm of entertainment is conflict. That's what draws people, that's what draws audiences in all kinds of entertainment. Um, and so, so there is this normal incentive to intensify the conflict. Um, and that comes on top of a decade of profoundly disappointing um, news to most Americans, economic news, and indeed the destruction of a large share of the wealth uh, or significant share of the wealth of, of a significant number, number of people. And so they're angry anyway. Um, and you bring all these things together and you create this kind of political system that um, uh, that can't accomplish anything. One last element, and it is the one thing in, which in principle we can do something about, and that is the redistricting process. That we have a system in which we have partisan drawing of the lines of congressional districts, and both sides for the last 30 years have been drawing those lines in order to create the safest districts possible for Democrats in cities and for Republicans in rural areas and suburbs, and so the, the competition within the political system has moved from the competition between and for Congress from the parties to the primaries because whoever wins the primary is going to win that district. And that uh, creates a new incentive for a more radical view on both sides, although I think it's mainly on the conservative side, um, uh, because participation in primary elections is low, and only the most devoted activists are the ones who, who you can be sure will go that come would, out. That wouldn't affect the Senate at all. No, it doesn't affect the Senate. It, uh, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't explain the Senate. There's no single explanation here. There are lots and lots of pieces of it. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the Senate is still less... less uh, polarized than uh, the House uh, and less extreme, but the fact is, the Tea Party, you know, this the the Tea Party success in knocking off conservative Republicans in um, in primary elections in 2010, I think, had a profound effect on Republicans in the Senate, who were all terrified of being. Uh, Challenge. Look what John McCain did. Um, you know, look what Orrin Hatch did. I mean, you know, these kind of people who had been the kind of centrist right Republicans who now are indistinguishable from okay. the so, far right. But, uh, uh, on, I think on, we could, on this issue, yeah, of the yeah, we can agree that our system's not working, and, there, and it's, there's no one cause. I think we could also agree on that. 
Um, and I wouldn't, uh, it is polarized, there's no question about that. Uh, but on this money issue, I think it's quite critical. I don't think I can brush that aside. Lawrence Lessig at Harvard just wrote a book on campaign finance reform, and he generated a number which I just thought was startling. Uh, and I can't certify it because I haven't tracked it down, but he, he, he somehow calculated that the vast majority of spending for federal elections in the United States is financed presently by the top one-half of 1% of the American population. Uh, the point here is that that's not, a, that's not merely a partisan issue, which party is going to win at any level. It's a question of why whoever is elected is not going to adopt policies that contradict vested interests in our society. Which but is it was not, not true of Barack Obama. So, that was yeah. not true of Barack Obama. Okay, but financing. guys, we're talking about the old, old world. Let's think about the new world for just a second on this issue. We have an opportunity now through this new platform called Americans Elect. Go to AmericansElect.org. We have a, an opportunity to get a third party candidate up who's an independent or, uh, th- or at least is trying to bring the two sides together to uh, break this uh, logjam, to uh, get the American middle uh, who's not an extremist on one side or the other, to, to have a, a voice. Because both parties, as I see it, are catering to their extreme wings because they're the people that show up at the primaries. So we need to have a, a middle of the country represented, and that's where I'm coming from, to get the, the nomination of this party. And once that happens, I think we'll be able to have a real intelligent conversation that's different from what's going on right now in, in the... Uh, in the election area. Now, let me respond to the question about Social Security. So Greenspan's commission looked out 75 years. They ignored many years that we're now looking at. In our 75-year window right now, there's about 27 years, 28 years that uh, they ignored, and 29 years. And those are terrible years in terms of cash flow deficits. So they knew they weren't looking long enough, and they said, we fixed it, but they didn't fix it. And so how to fix things? Well, under what I'm proposing, I would freeze the, I would retire Social Security, the old Social Security system, and I put in place a new Social Security system. But what does this mean? I would freeze the existing system in terms of any further benefit accrual. So someone like you would get all your benefits because you've accrued your benefits already. So all the benefits you've been promised would be 100% guaranteed under what I'm proposing. So, with cost of living exactly the way the current system is set up. Somebody like me, who's still working, would have zeros filled in his earnings record, and uh, I would get a somewhat smaller Social Security check when I ultimately take them than would otherwise be the case. But I would also set up a new system where everybody, and let me, it's going to uh, sound whether left wing, white, it may sound right wing to hear, but, but listen through it, okay? It's not right wing, it's middle, middle, it's purple. So, <laughs> I would have everybody who's working contribute 8% of their pay to a personal account. And I would have that contribution split between the, the legal partners, uh, spouses and legal partners. So if you have a non-working uh, spouse, that person would have an equal size account. I would have the government make matching contributions on behalf of low contributors. That's something President Clinton proposed when he was thinking about, uh, about a reform of Social Security. I would have the government contribute on behalf of the unemployed and the disabled. So we have a progressive contribution system here. And then I would have all the account balances invested collectively, not by Wall Street, but collectively in one security, which is a global market-weighted index fund of stocks and bonds and real estate trusts. 
So, so now you have everybody getting the same rate of return. It's a social program. It makes no sense to uh, say to, to you that you have to save in this account and you have to save in this account. And by the way, you get to go use that broker on Wall Street. And if you choose this broker on Wall Street, you might have a great retirement. You might have a lousy retirement. If the government's getting involved, it has an, it has a, uh, uh, it has an, an obligation to make sure everybody who contributes the same amount has the same living standard in retirement in terms of a base living standard. So it's invested in a global market-weighted index fund. The government guarantees a zero real return. It puts a floor to any losses you can occur. You get it back at least what you've contributed adjusted for inflation. And how do you get it back? You get it back by having the same computer that does all the investments, and that's all it's going to take is one little computer to do all this. No, nobody on Wall Street gets, gets involved at all. That same computer will take each cohort's account balances, gradually sell them off over 10 years from 60 to 70, and convert them into inflation-protected pensions. So this is a modern version of Social Security that's, equitable, that's progressive, that uh, protects dependents, and that is going to save about $60 trillion in present value relative to the current system. And if you do the purple tax plan, the purple Social Security plan, the purple health plan, you get rid of the fiscal gap of $211 trillion. If you don't, we're screwed. The, the older, yeah. the older, pe- old, older people uh, used to be the most impoverished group of people in the United States before Social Security. Now they're the least impoverished, and that's because of Social Security. Now, we should have, it could have only been, we wouldn't enact it the same way today if we, we right. did then. The only way we could get it done was to make it look like it's a contributory system. It's a pay-as-you-go system, and it's linked to the principle that Rob mentioned that young people should pay to provide for people who can't provide for themselves, especially their parents. Uh, so I think we should just call it that. And it doesn't seem to me that the system is in such terrible condition that you couldn't solve its problems with relatively modest means. That's, that's exactly contradicted by Table 4B6 of the Social Security Trustees Report, which says the thing is 29% underfunded. It's in worse fiscal shape than it's ever been. It's just not the case. You need a 3.3 percentage point hike in the payroll tax immediately and permanently. So every... One of you young people here would have to pay 3.3% more of every dollar you earn for the rest of your life to get this system into balance. That's according to the Social Security actuaries, not according to me. So don't tell me this thing's got a small problem. It doesn't. It's got an enormous problem. It's in terrible shape. And, and uh, to say that the young people, a poor young person, should be handing money to Warren Buffett through this system, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, there's another right? feature of it, which you might consider in making a proposal as radical as you have, yeah. uh, that... Uh, uh, you're not going to get a lot of votes. This is this is the most popular program. I'm willing to take my, my risk on this. Okay, okay. I, I do want to say I do want to say, uh, Larry, that uh, compliment you both on your courage uh, and on your imagination, which are in extremely short supply on <laughs> people running for public office. In let, let, me, let me just say one last thing, Rob. <coughs> you and I and Rob have the same values. We have the same concerns about workers. We have the same concerns about progressivity. That's an important thing to understand. We're not coming at this with right. different uh, social norms here at all. Okay? No, I yeah, understand. But, you know, part of the, the political, purpose... But there are a lot of people in this political debate who don't share those values. In fact. Yeah. Right. Part, of, part of the purpose in these kinds of sessions is to, you know, make the point that there are very different ways of doing things. Yeah, we may And that they, yeah, you know, right. they add up and, uh, like and you don't have like to do it like this or like similar to this. You can do it quite differently. Yeah, I want to. Uh, I, w- I will do that, but I want to give uh, the audience. If you have one or two more questions, we can take them. 
Yes, the gentleman here, the lady there, and the gentleman there, and then we'll come back to the panel. Please take. Uh, please also introduce yeah, yourself. Yeah, Paul London. I used to work with Rob a long time ago in the Clinton administration. Um, you made one point, which I think is really central here, and and it is that there one of your imbalances is between this financial economy and the real economy, which I think people talk about very little. That is, we are broke, in one sense. But we have, in the other sense, 25, or you said 27 million people who aren't working. We have 3 million tons, or 30 million tons of idle cement capacity. We got steel up the wazoo. We have so much resource. So we are broke, as Baynard and you say, in the money sense. But we are not broke in the resource sense. Mm -hmm. And I think, I have never heard an economist who could stay on this issue for more than about five seconds before they started to confound the two. And I wish you would talk a little bit about this. All right, we'll come back. Yes, the lady. Yeah. I, I haven't heard anyone say anything about Obamacare, and uh, I've been reading reports that this is going to cost a lot of money. And I was just at a talk where the governor, the current governor of Utah, gave the GDP percentage of his state that spent on Medicare was the quote that you said is unsustainable. And he said his is going up. And his state is it's actually a, a growth state. They're doing pretty well. Um, so I just wanted to anyone comment on that. Yes. And I think the gentleman here had a question. Yeah, there you are. You have, please introduce yourself. Yes, uh, Chris O'Flynn. Uh, first of all, Larry, I think the uh, conversation that, and the creativity that you've engendered here is a good endorsement for your candidacy, even if Thanks. people disagree with some of your proposals. Chris is a plan. He's a good buddy of mine, so <laughs> <laughs> this will be um, full disclosure. And I, and I do disagree with some of your proposals. <laughs> but, um, you started off this discussion of next steps by uh, concentrating on health care. And I do think that that's the place to start. It's, it's very difficult for a union to demand a wage increase when preceding them to the bargaining table is uh, a health care cost increase in 5% of their current wages. Um, and my, my question really is, if, if one disagrees with Larry that the way to solve this fundamentally is to get pushback on the cost by effectively budgeting it at the top, uh, well, then what would you do? Because right now we don't seem to have any normal economic control on, we have no cost-benefit analysis going on in uh, what affects health care costs. Good. Okay. Rob, you want us to kick it off? Yeah. Okay. I'll just talk a little about Obamacare, which also addresses some of your concerns. You know, we were talking before about political polarization. It's the, it's the ideal example. It's a program which was designed around a consensus centrist Republican position from the 1990s, uh, and um, which actually had originally come out of conservative think tanks like the Heritage Foundation. Uh, the polarization made it, that was not the point. What it actually did was not the point. Um, Yes, Medicaid costs are going to go up significantly under Obamacare. And the reason is that we're shifting a lot of people who aren't covered today to Medicaid. And let's recognize that we were paying the cost in other ways. 
of those people. We are shifting where, where it is taken account of um, from, uh, pressure, from pressures on insurance rates from hospitals that had to be compensated in some way, at least part of it, um, for all the people they were taking care of who weren't covered by Medicaid and didn't have insurance to a Medicaid system. So Medicaid will go up. It is largely, again, people who are uninsured today, and so what they're getting in insurance is Medicaid. Um, the uh, Obamacare, we have, economists have come up with seven or eight different ways to try to, as they say, as we say, bend the curve on health care costs, which is to say reduce the rate of increase in health care costs, slow it. Um, and um, most of them are in Obamacare in kind of small form. Um, and, um, uh, and in particular, you know, there are lots of really interesting studies that show that different hospitals uh, produce the exact same outcomes at widely different costs. Um, and that there is no mechanism for the sharing of best practices and there's no mechanism to enforce the application of those practices. Obamacare has a small version of that uh, for Medicare, uh, which is where most of the costs are anyway. Uh, that is older people, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, uh, Medicaid for older people, that is long-term health care. Uh, and, um, you know, the two things it didn't have were the two things that each of the parties wanted most. A single-payer, a government system in places where there's very little competition, which Democrats really wanted, and serious tort reform, which Republicans really wanted. Both of those fell out. Almost everything else that we know of to do is in there in some form. We need to beef it up and expand it in order to get some sense, some control over it. Um, uh, unless we are ready to take a top-down approach that Larry is proposing, um, which, and a lot of his ideas are very intriguing and they're all smart and creative, um, how they would actually play out in an incredibly complex system is something that I know Larry would acknowledge he can't tell us. Uh, Ron, and then Larry, yeah. At this point on competitiveness, the United States has some of the most competitive companies in the world, but the U.S. national economy is not competitive in the sense that we, uh, even before the crisis, we were importing 6% of our GDP to pay for the things that we consume that we don't produce. We have to find some way to produce more of the value equivalent of what we consume, or sooner or later, even though we print the world's reserve currency, we're going to have to consume less. And the only way we can do that as a, as a high standard, large, high standard country high, and high wage country in a globalized world is if we um, use our resources uh, to innovate new products, better service on an ever increasing scale. Innovation is the key here. But we also have to have a, uh, a world class workforce <coughs> that's operating at the very highest levels, which means education and training. We have to have a, a, a world-class infrastructure. As I said before, in basic infrastructure, is a $3.3 trillion deficit. Our bridges are falling into rivers, and our cities are drowning, you know. And uh, we have to have an innovation infrastructure. 
We have some of the best universities in the world. We have some of our national laboratories are a miracle. Uh, but we're not using these resources to produce more of the value products and, and customer services that we're getting. Uh, Apple is swimming in money, apparently, uh, after they sold a gazillion of those uh, new iPads that they had. Uh, but all the activity, or a lot of the activity that's taking place is taking place uh, outside of this country. So I would say, too, that, 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 that I can't imagine anything that we, we would need more than a national economic strategy. And unfortunately, and, uh, we do have a strategy. Uh, and the strategy is, let's create a set of policies that work for finance. And we, you had mentioned finance versus the real economy. I wrote a book about competition. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in competition, but I also believe that economists don't clearly understand the connection between money and the real economy. And I thought you were going to speak to that. Well, that, that's the point here. And I was getting to this, okay? The, you, money is not just the budget. Money is finance as a part of the economy. And there's a fiscal aspect of what the government, and they deal with money. Um, but the reason why we have a non-competitive national economy, despite our enormous economic resources in this country, is that the set of policies that were put in place, starting with a strong dollar policy, remember that, uh, is that there's basically an effective deal between the United States uh, protecting the interests of finance, that is interested in a strong dollar if you're managing large, uh, large quantities of dollar-denominated assets, that's very convenient. And if you can increase the profits of finance by raising profit margins by allowing productive firms to outsource their op offshore their opportunities. China benefited. They have a national strategy, and the strategy is to industrialize by attracting these people with an undervalued currency and, and, and subsidies, et cetera. So it's working great for China's industrialization. It's working great for Wall Street. They're swimming in money. It's just not working for manufacturing and making products, which is the key to reestablishing our nation's competitiveness. Let me okay, Larry. say real quick, yeah. uh, a number of things that Ron said that I agree with. I mean, we need an education policy that works. Where our education system is failing, so uh, there's a purple education plan that uh, you could take a look at. Uh, when you look at this uh, balance sheet that I started with, where you talk about the, the assets being the present value of taxes, and you have the liabilities being the expenditures uh, and the official debt, the present value of the expenditures, well, it, from Ron's perspective, what he's saying is, gee, maybe we should, uh, first of all, move forward some of those expenditures that we're going to otherwise have to do on infrastructure, because we have all these un, un, underemployed uh, and unemployed people, which that makes perfect sense. I'm all for that. And let's also think about uh, the kinds of investments that can actually make this country more productive. They may also be in the in the area of of research on drugs that uh, the drug companies are not going to find profitable because there's not enough of a market out there. So that's a case where you make more expenditures, the liabilities are higher, but you're potentially more productive, so the taxes are higher too. So this double-sided bookkeeping can actually be a way to think about investing in a sensible manner where it actually does have a good cost-benefit payout, R&D by the energy industry, by, you know, just basic R&D we need to expand. Now, I read your, your question about money and, and real economy. Uh, there's different ways to, to read it, but the way I'm taking it is uh, connects to the macroeconomics of coordination failure, which is a big part of the macroeconomic literature over the last three decades. And that argues that markets don't work because you can have multiple 
equilibria. You can have the economy settle down in a bad place or be in a good place. And it has to do with Keynes's animal spirit. So what happened in 2008 in September is that the entire country panicked over this company, Lehman Brothers, falling apart. Okay, so their buildings didn't disappear. Their people didn't disappear. They moved to different jobs. But every, everybody panicked. So over the next 19 months, we had all the major employers, the minor employers, systematically firing 500,000 people per month. That was a coordinated act of firing. I want to, as if I become president, the first thing I would do day one would be to take the top 1,000 CEOs, put them in a room. I'd put NFL players around all the <laughs> exits. And I would talk to these folks about, I would ask them to put their hands under their seats. and say, everybody do this. What are you doing? You're all sitting on your hands. You're waiting for the other guy to hire so you'll have customers. But you're not hiring yourself because you're not sure that you'll have any customers. What I would say is let's take our hands out, put them up in the air, and this is what you're now doing is volunteering to increase your employment, each one of you, by 5% and work with your workers, make this a coordinated effort. if we pass, by the way, the Purple Health Plan, we're going to get the whole uh, health insurance monkey off the back of the employers and the workers. And now we're going to get you to have more customers. You're going to hire more people. That's going to be a cost to you. But it's also going to mean that you're, everybody else is doing it at the same time. They're, you're going to have more customers. So here's a way for us to get back to closer to full employment. That's how you deal with coordination failures. You engage in, we had a coordination a coordinated firing. It wasn't a conspiracy of firing, but everybody looked at the bad news and the panicked expressions of the officials. They coordinated their behavior to fire. I want to coordinate everybody's behavior to hire. And that's worth trying. And that doesn't cost a penny. It costs some time of the president to actually talk to the public about what's wrong with the economy, why it's not working. Once you get the big employers to do this, you can get the middle-sized employers. I'd leave the small employers on their own to do whatever they want. I wouldn't touch them. Okay, we have time for one last quick question, and then I'll come to closing comments from the panel. Jim Collins. Hi, Jim Collins from Carnegie. Um, It's commonly said that the American economy is about 70% consumer-driven. And you're talking about lack of education, lack of infrastructure construction. I mean, all of these things are fundamentally losers. You know, they're not profit-making. They are fundamentally public expenses. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we deal with this? I mean, if 70% of people in a system where the inequality is putting huge assets at the top is consumer-driven, how do we get the required investments in infrastructure and those things that are not money-making? Okay, so we'll come back to the panel and I'm going to ask them to answer the question, if, if appropriate, that question, and then to make closing remarks at the same time. First of all, there, there is a constituency for those kinds of public investments because most people recognize that public investment is a precondition of their private profit. Uh, businesses lose money when uh, they have to spend much more time transporting goods and people because of a lousy infrastructure. Uh, It costs them money to train workers who lack basic skills. There has always been a majority support for uh, pretty vigorous public investment in the three areas of classic market failure, education and training, 
public infrastructure and basic research uh, and basic research. Um, the um, uh, the problem is that it's much harder to sell those things when you have an economic context in which other things are being cut and in which the competition for in which the resources are highly scarce. So in that sense, what it says is we need a faster-growing economy which create which will revive the constituency for public investment. I don't think it really is about the fact that we have a consumer-driven, uh, uh, the fact that most of what we produce and, and buy are consumer goods. Um, that's true in virtually every economy. Um, and um, so... Uh, you know, I'm I'm encouraged by the fact that we're a little closer than we ever have been before to a national infrastructure bank, which could create a lot of stability in uh, in the flow of funding for infrastructure. Um, and um, you know how we have forgotten one of the most basic rules of American development and global development, which is the all of the most successful economies in the world consistently invest about 10% of GDP in education. Whether that's Korea or Scandinavia or the United States, all the most successful economies in the world uh, have done that consistently. Uh, and we did it for decades and have and no longer do it. It's really kind of shocking. Thank you. Um, Ron, closing remarks, if you want to... Yeah, I'm consistent with... Yeah. Uh, to sharpen that point, uh, Apple made all this money... How? Can you can think of Apple successfully without an internet? Where did the internet come from? It came from military research, basic research. That, you couldn't have sold, the military couldn't have sold that. They had to create the, the basis by which these, country, these companies can launch their investment. And it's investment that drives this economy, not consumption. And any country that's not investing enough has no future at all. There will be no future growth if we consumed all that we uh, uh, all of our income. I think it's, uh, and, and, and we won't have a sustained growth or even recovery until we have really sustained private investment. But the way to get that going is by spending some money now uh, and spending it on public aspect of the investment that we need to provide the basis for long-term growth and competitiveness. So not, there's with all of our resources, there is no reason to think that there's any limit on our ability to go forward and, and prosper the way we always have. Uh, all this literature that we see about the, the failing nation and the declining nation, uh, that's, that, does, that does not have to be. There's no good reason for that. But to, for, it, for it not to be uh, means that we have to find a way to marshal these resources and applying them to big purposes. And the, so what's so important about this, uh, this panel and discussions like this is to be able to discuss the problems that will ensure our country a way forward in a, in a prosperous way uh, and overcome the political problems that we all have. And the fact that we have some discussion, you know, infrastructure, for example, whether it's public investment or not, infrastructure is something that, 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 that the parties should agree on. Labor and business agree on it. I've testified right along with the uh, Chamber of Commerce on this issue, and we don't testify much uncommon. Right. Uh, uh, but there should be a, a national consensus about rebuilding uh, the, this country's capacity to serve its people's needs and its aspirations. And if, it, if, if we had that, 
we could solve all the technical problems, and we would get uh, we would give a chance to provide a, a, some space uh, for Larry to exercise his imagination and in helping to solve these problems. Larry, closing remark, please. Okay. Well, well, let me try and connect a few uh, dots here briefly. Though. Briefly, yeah. Yeah. Our national saving rate in 1951 was 16%. Our net national saving rate last year it was 0%. Uh, in 1951, our domestic net domestic investment rate was around 16%. Last year, it was around 4%. We've had uh, a steady increase in consumption as a share of national income. That hasn't been due to the government consuming more, either federal and state. It's combined, that's the same share the household sector's consumption is going way up. Who within the household sector is consuming so much more? Well, it turns out it's the elderly. We're taking more and more resources from young people and giving them to old people who are close to the end of their lives. They're not altruistic as we would love them to be and giving the money back to their kids. They're basically consuming. A lot of it is coming in the, in, in the form of in-kind consumption health care benefits. They can't do anything but consume this stuff. So we've had one, per, one party after the other uh, engaged in an expropriation of the young to the benefit of the old, which is now blowing up in the faces of the baby boomers and the young people because the promises are far beyond what the young people can afford. And at the same time, we've neglected educational investments and infrastructure investments, and we've also squandered resources on two wars we didn't need to run, which were not winnable wars, and we're now seeing... Uh, the conclusions of those finally. So we need to do a lot of things. The reason we're running a big current account deficit, this is the competitiveness question, has to do with the fact that we don't have any saving to invest here because we're saving nothing. We're consuming everything. So therefore, the Chinese and other countries are investing here because they see some profitable investments. But still, investment is very low. So we need to turn th things around to orient ourselves towards cons uh, to saving and investment. And by getting rid of the corporate income tax, we should have a big inflow of investment into the U.S., and uh, that's one way to get the, the economy rolling. To get people collectively to hire is another way to get out of our trap. So we can do some things in the short run to turn things around, but then we have to be really creative with our limited resources about how to, to move forward, and we can't get into wars that, that uh, aren't purpose, you know, that aren't actually going to achieve our objectives and don't make... Uh, Real sense. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me, uh, sorry, let me just say one word before. I want to thank you. I, I just want to, no, no, I just want to close with uh, one remark that you may either find reassuring or depressing. And I look at the international economy, and the United States is actually in much better shape than Europe or Japan, uh, on my assessment, by and large. Uh, so take that as a positive. <laughs> Or a, or a terrible warning, whichever way you want to. But I'd like to uh, thank our panelists. I think really they, they raised a lot of questions, brought forward a lot of ideas. And uh, so thank you very much. And thank you all for, for coming today. Yeah.